0: Say also to all mothers, Happy Mother's Day! And uh, you know, when I think about my own mother, she's been a lot like a mom to me. I'm joking. Um, No, I'm very thankful. It was my mother who shared with me the message of salvation on American Road, right outside of Gillette, Wyoming, when I was a little kid, and explained to me the gospel. So I am very, very thankful for my mother and many things that she's taught, and so. Very, very thankful also for godly women, godly women who know the Lord, who are able to encourage, able to, to help all of us along the way as, as servants, and uh, so very thankful for all of you. On a completely unrelated note, there's really no way to segue to what I'm about ready to talk about. So, I remember when I was working at Home Depot, there was a legend, a Home Depot legend of the founder uh, he was the guy who founded Home Depot and he uh, one, one day got a call from a lady and said I will never shop at a Home Depot again because I drove by one of your stores and the back of the store was such a mess that I'm never coming back and there's, there's absolutely no way that I would ever give my money to a company that doesn't care about its product or its image just never coming back so the founder said what's the address Promised the lady I'm going to I'm going to clean up the back of the store and then give you a call when it's done. So he did. He took a team. He went and he cleaned up the store, and he called the lady, and he said, Ma'am, we want to let you know we kept our promise. We cleaned up the back of the store, but we are never doing this again. And the lady said, What do you mean? Don't you care about your store? How dare you? Call me after you clean up and say, we're never going to do this again. Do you not care about the image? Don't you care about the work? Don't you care about all this stuff? And the founder said, "Ma'am, that was an Ace Hardware store that you called us about. That wasn't even a Home Depot. But we did it. We cleaned it up. We're never going to our competitor again to clean up their back store, the, the back of the store. I bring up this story to talk about leadership and commitment. He gave his word and he did it. He followed through. And there was even a little bit of a rebuke there. Uh, We're never doing this again. And, And in a sense, as we're talking in the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, we're talking about wise leadership and what is a wise leader. As we've been going through this series of leadership, there's a couple things that I want to remind us of... So remember the first basic principles we talked about at the very beginning of chapter 20. We said, first of all, everyone at some point in their life, in some capacity, will be a leader. Now, it looks different, right? Some people's leadership looks different than others, right? So you have church leadership, leadership at a job, leadership in a family, leadership among friends. But everyone will have some leadership role at some time in their life. Second, it's very true. Every believer is a follower. Absolutely and necessarily, right? We are all followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is then also true that then the best leaders, the wisest leaders, are the best followers, right? So we're in this weird position as leaders, We're leading, and we're also following, which then gives us then our goal. Our goal is to point people and say, look, this is where we're going. This is who we're following. Follow me as I'm following him. We're going this way. This is the way we're going. We're going towards him. So we don't really set the agenda. We just lead people towards the agenda that's already set. In chapter 20 of Proverbs, we've already seen a couple things. First thing we've seen in the first part of chapter 20 is that a wise leader deals with sin, not only with his own sin, but he also deals with the sin of others, and that incredibly complex situation of people are depraved, and there's a lot of things to deal with. Second, a wise leader will use discernment. Third thing we've seen is that a wise leader will put in a decent day's work, and that Last week, we talked about how a wise leader will devise plans. This morning, we're going to talk about how a wise leader is devoted to, is committed to his commitments, keeping his commitments. And he's also devoted to dealing with people in a right way, in a biblical way. So this morning, go with me to Proverbs chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 25 through 30, Lord willing. And Lord willing, we'll finish this. So in verse 25 what we're going to see this morning is that a wise leader is devoted to what is right by keeping his commitments. Now notice notice what is said in verse 25. It says it is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making a vow. So just notice that Solomon here says this is a snare A snare, for all who do not know what a snare is, that's a trap to catch an animal. And by nature, a snare is something that's hidden. Like, you don't put it out in the open, because if you put it out in the open, the animal will see it and not go through with it. It also has something that attracts the animal to it, right? So so it's something that's hidden. You don't necessarily see it right away. It's something that has an attractant that the animal is going to be attracted to it. And it's also something that once a person, once an animal gets inside... The more that it struggles to get out of it, the more it it strangles itself or it hurts itself or it kills itself. And so notice that Solomon uses this this metaphor of a snare, but notice what the snare is. Notice this thing that's kind of secret, it's kind of hidden, it's got a couple of things that attract us to it. It also has something that the more we try to get out of it, the more it kills us. Notice what it is. He says... uh, it is a snare to rashly say it is holy. So the snare is the rashness, right, of declaring something holy. The question is, what does this mean? I mean, is it really bad to say that is holy, this is holy? I mean, as believers, shouldn't our entire life be one characterized by holiness? Every moment is characterized by holy living. Right, our families are holy. Everything we do is should be used for the service of God. So, so is it? Is that's what Solomon saying? Don't be too holy. Add a little bit of sin in your life. You don't want to be that too holy guy. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. That that would be an impossible thing. Remember, when we're studying the Bible, what we do is we take clear passages, passages that make sense. As we do this, we then create a framework or a fence. And then when we get to a verse that says something that's kind of strange like this, like, don't rashly say something's holy, since we have this Bible fence and we have these clear texts, we can go, well, it obviously can't mean this because of this statement and this statement. So the question is, what, is it, what does it mean to too rashly, uh, in, in a sense of passion and fervor, to say it is holy? There's two examples I could think of in the scripture. There's lots, but two that come to mind. The first is King Saul. Remember when King Saul was told to go in and destroy the entire town and not keep anything? And then what did he do? He didn't. He killed some of the stuff. And then he kept some of the animals back for himself. And when Samuel came and he says, what are you doing? You were supposed to kill the king. The king's here. Supposed to kill all the animals. The animals are still around. What are you doing? And Saul's answer was, We thought it would be great as a gift to the Lord to give these animals to him, right? These are holy animals given to the Lord. Isn't that great, Samuel? Look how great we are. And Samuel says, what's wrong with you? That's not what he wanted. He wanted you to do what he asked you to do. So the sense of rashly saying something is holy is not being holy, but then the thing that you're doing... That's not what God wants. Then declaring that to be holy, that's an issue. The second one is that guy in the book of Judges. You know the guy who said, God, if you let me win this battle, the first thing that comes out of my house when I come back, I will sacrifice it to you. The Lord allows the guy to win the battle, and guess who comes running out? Is his daughter. Rash. Didn't think about it, Right? And so a wise leader here in this tense, because remember, starting in verse 8, going all the way down to verse 30 of the section is dealing with kings and monarchs and leadership. A uh, first thing that a wise leader does is he, he keeps his commitments, but he doesn't make the wrong commitments, right? He does, he's not too quick to say, look, this is holy. This is from God. This is something that God is sanctioning. A wise leader uses discernment, uses the word, and sees what 's going on, and when it is of God, he declares it holy, and when it 's not, he doesn 't right there 's that discernment there 's that ability to say this is this is what God wants, this is what 's sacred, this is not so, so, so the warning here is against this rashness i 'll be honest um, I, I, I feel like a lot of things that happen in the modern church happen, not because of solid biblical reasons, godly people talking about what should the church do or what should we do as a church or what's God's will, but a lot that happens is because of religious fervor, that, that passion, that emotionalism. And it's almost as if some churches, it appears, that they do that on purpose. They get everybody all emotional And then they make them make commitments. That also falls into this. That's not good. Emotional fervor, just for the sake of being emotional, is not good. Being passionate about the things of the Lord is incredible. That's what we want, right? We want to be passionate for the things of the Lord. We, We want to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. We want to fear him and fear him openly. We don't want this irrational, not thinking, not biblical, not Christ-centered, that's holy, this is holy, that's holy, this is holy, we'll do this. Jesus doesn't say to do this, but we'll do it anyway. Happy birthday, Jesus. Hope you like the gift you didn't ask for. Now there's another thing, notice, uh, in this text. It says it's a snare, which means that it's something easily, that we all easily do. We all easily, rashly say these things are holy. Something that we kind of like doing. But then it's also a snare to reflect only after making a vow. Um, yeah, we've probably all done this. we probably all met people that done this. we probably all signed contracts in the moment that we signed it. We thought, I didn't think about that one at all. I just signed, uh-oh, that's, that's bad. That's I made a terrible mistake. The idea is we shouldn't do this. And wise leaders don't make these rash vows. They, they, they think about it, but, but the idea is that they just don't, it's not the absent of vows that Solomon's talking about. It's about keeping the right vows, making the right vows and keeping the right vows. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5 warns, warns us uh, that when we make a vow to the Lord, that we are to keep it. And, and, and we should never say it was a mistake for me to make a vow to the Lord when I made a vow. He said it would be better never to do it than to do it. There's plenty of times where people have made commitments to the Lord in many different areas. Marriage commitments, right? Church membership commitments. All these were made as a vow between the Lord and the people, and they, they they did it without thinking, and then you know, they fall in love with the dimple and wake up next to the girl and go, uh-oh! <laughs> I got the whole thing. When we say yes, it should mean yes. But it also should be mindful of what God wants. So a wise leader is not rash. A wise leader leader keeps his commitments. He doesn't make foolish commitments without thinking about them, right? Now, the next section from verses 26 to 30 deals with a wise leader as he deals with people and and how he deals with people in different capacities, uh, whether it's a good way or, or even in punishment and injustice. And so we're going to see that a wise leader is devoted to what is good. He's devoted to things that are found in the scriptures, those things which promote Christ, those things which promote the gospel. That's what he's about. And and, and his motivation is one of love, a, a motivation of love for God, a motivation for what is, what is good, and, and fear of the Lord and of wisdom and discernment. So when we look through some of these things, they might seem a little harsh to our modern ear, but you must understand that the, under, the undercurrent of the book of Proverbs, every single verse should have the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, and this is what it looks like. So every pe- verse should have the fear of the Lord. So some of the stuff which might seem harsh to our modern ear, must understand comes from a sense of wisdom, discernment, God's law, comes from a sense of, of uh, desiring righteousness, Desiring that which is good. People living for the Lord. That, that's the idea. So notice in verse 26 what it says. It says, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Sounds painful, I know. Now remember, we've already talked about this winnowing when we were in verse 8, right? So in verse 8, it starts this section with the king, and he winnows. And remember, that idea of winnowing is that process of removing wheat kernels from all the rest of the stuff you don't want, right? So it's that process. So a wise king looks at the evil and says, I don't want what's evil. I don't want what's wrong. I want to keep that which is good, So Solomon immediately then says, okay, so when when a wise king is dealing with people, when he's dealing with where to go, direction, he goes, I want to do what's right, and I don't want to do what's wrong. Discernment, discernment, that ability to know what is right, what is wrong, that ability to know truth from error, and that ability to, to do the right thing in the right way, in the right attitude, but notice the next part, right? So, so we kind of remember this winnows, a wise king winnows the wicked. But then it says it drives the wheel over them. Uh, there's two ways of taking this. It's either punitive, right? So he, 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 he sees what's bad, and then he crushes, he crushes it, right, keeping what's good. So some people have said well what this wheel means is a chariot wheel like his army right like he winnows what's good and what's bad and all that evil you're getting mowed down by his chariots or it's some torture device which would be that would be excruciating to have somebody drive over top of you as a torture there's another which says no it's part of the process of winnowing so so in in at that time they would use several devices to help them become more efficient in their work to separate the wheat kernels from all the other stuff that you don't want. And one of those devices that they used was a wheel that had a, had an iron edge on it that would cut through some of that stuff and separate, and there would be a grate at the bottom as it would go over this, and you'd kind of throw this, the, the sheaves in there and the wheel would go over and all the kernels would drop to the bottom and all the other stuff would be swept away. And, and that's what I think Solomon's talking about here. I, I think that's kind of the image is that, A wise king desires to have what's right remain, what's good remain, and what's evil done away with. It's that discernment. I I want what's good. I want what's right. I want what's righteous. I want that which honors Christ. That's what needs to remain. All that other stuff needs to be gone. And that's his desire. And then the question would be, well, how does a wise king do this? Or how does a wise leader do this? It would then be the following verses. Notice what he says. Verse 27, the spirit of a man is a lamp of the Lord searching all his innermost parts. It's amazing how the Lord has made us, how the Lord has fashioned us, how we have a part that's who we really are, that people can't necessarily see, right? That immaterial part of man. It's incredible that he's made that. Very clear from Scripture that man, apart from God's help, apart from God's word, apart from the spirit working, apart from Christ, that that person on the inside is dead. And that dead person is described as like a zombie-like character. I know we go to this text a lot, but I think it's important. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Notice this is a description of... Who, of what we used to look like before we knew Christ, right? This is a picture of all of us, what we look like. So Ephesians 2, 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you see that we were dead, so it's a spiritual death, but we're still walking around, so we're like zombies. And, and it notice what it says. It says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirits, is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, So you get this picture of man that's hopelessly lost, kind of walking around, going through the emotions, kind of given over to the desires of the flesh and of the mind, those things which are against the Lord. It's very clear that a person that's like this, who's f- fleshly, is also incredibly arrogant, I- incredibly boastful, th- thinks that it can do something to be right before God, which is the not true, right? It's impossible. There's nothing you and I can do to be right before God. We can't go to church enough or pray enough. We can't awaken ourselves to God or see these realities. We're dead, right? This is what it describes. We're dead. There's nothing I could say or do that will allow me to see myself correctly or see God correctly apart from God himself, right? And it's when God awakens our heart, he allows us to see who we are, allows us to see who we are in light of who he is. So in this proverb, when Solomon talks about the immaterial part of man being a lamp it's not that it's a lamp onto itself that that we're just kind of born with this ability to see who we really are and look into ourselves and really if you're just messed up all you got to do is just look harder and if you look harder then you can see who you really are really in a sense every single person is in this identity crisis because we don't know who we are we, we, we can't see our own sinfulness. We're struggling with our own sinfulness. The scriptures constantly say, how can a man know his own way? How, what does Jeremiah say? The heart is, de- is deceptive. So then how can a man understand his own heart? The only way that a man can see who he is truly is, in the, is when God reveals who we are. That's what the scriptures do. So in a sense, when he's talking about a spirit that's a lamp that's able to look into the deep recesses of our soul, it is a lamp, it is a soul that's informed by Scripture. It's one that's informed by God. And when it's informed by God, then we're able to see who we are. We're able to see our own shortcomings. We're able to see our own inabilities, right? And before I came to know Christ, and it was when I was exposed to the Scripture as a young 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 kid by my mom explaining to me passages in the book of Romans i was able to see my own sinfulness my inability to save myself and then the absolute necessity to believe on jesus alone for the salvation of my of my soul that's what the scriptures do it enlightens so it allows me to see but then as i continue to grow in grace and knowledge doesn't the scripture seem to constantly expose things that we didn't know were there before. Issues and sins that I I didn't know. There's this conviction of sin, of sins I didn't even think I was committing. And now I realize not only have I committed them, but I may have even encouraged people to do the same. The scriptures do this. In fact, it's from a passage like this and others that we would say the Bible is the only book in the world that reads you. You're not reading it. It's reading you. It's looking at you, right? The author of Hebrews talks about this reality in Hebrews chapter 4. Notice what he says in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, I can't do that. I can't do that for myself, right? You can't do that for yourself. Even as a believer, the most well-intentioned believer can't even judge ourselves, right? Remember, Paul says this. Paul says, it's a small thing to be judged by you. I don't even judge myself. I'm judged by the Lord. Why? Because... I normally justify every single one of my actions. I don't look at myself correctly. There's no objectiveness to the way I look at things. The the only objectiveness that I can get is from God. God's objective. He tells me. And notice, this book is able to discern, to tell me what my thoughts, to judge my thoughts, and to judge the intentions of my heart. Only when, only when, when a person is led by the Spirit, has the Spirit of God, looking into his word, walking by the Spirit, can we begin to see who we are really and who Jesus is making us to be? And then notice verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So then let's go back to Proverbs and notice what he says. He says, The Spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. Right? It's like this flashlight, and it looks right. And when when God's word is inside of that lamp, powering what you're seeing, notice what notice what able it's able to do? Searching all his innermost parts. So you go, well, what does this have to do with a king? What does it have to do with a wise leader? Wise leader knows. I have trouble understanding myself. I have trouble looking at my self-objective. Uh, objectively, the only way I can do this is through God's word. If that's true for me, then it's true for everyone else. So when it comes time to get rid of the bad and to keep the good, it's not so much I try harder and try to convince you of your sin and try to promote that which is good. The goal, I want you to see what the scripture has to say so that God can work on your heart. God will convict you of those things that you're doing wrong. God will promote that which is good. So the winnowing, I I have a desire that that there only be good and there's nothing wrong. But I'm incapable of bringing that about. God is capable of bringing that about. And he does that through his word. So a wise leader then says, I'm going to let God do what God does. My job is just to expose you to this God. I'm going to expose you to his word. I'm going to let him do the work. He's going to convict of sin. He's going to bring about new life. He's going to show all of this stuff. I'm just going to let you see it. I'm going to point you to where you need to go, but you got, he's going to do the work. He's going to do that. And so a wise leader lets God be God. A wise leader lets God do the work. A wise leader doesn't try to twist people's arm and try to manipulate. He, he exposes them to the truth. And let's the truth work them over as it were. Winnow them. Beat them. Take the wheel over them and get out what's wrong and keep that which is good. God does that and he's the best at it. So the wise leader points to the scriptures and let the scriptures do the work. Notice notice the next verse in verse 28. said, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. So, notice how opposite this is from the modern concept of leadership. The modern concept of leadership is big dog with the biggest teeth that can dominate everybody gets to win. He's on top. And I can stay on top until you can dock me off my hill. But until then, I'm the leader. It's all about me. I'm the brand. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm the brand. Here Solomon says, no, 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 no. You understand that a leader loves. He loves. He loves God and he loves people. He he wants to honor God with his life. He wants everything to happen. Uh, A wise leader wants this to happen, right? One who's a leader wants God to be number one. But a wise leader also loves people. He wants people to live for Jesus, walk for Jesus. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy? The goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart. That's what a wise leader does. That's what he cares about. It's love. Caring about people. I, I want you to live for Jesus. I want you to be like Jesus. That's what I want. There's no greater joy than when God's people are living for Jesus. And that, that's the heart. That's the heart of a wise leader. That's what I want. And then notice the next thing. He's faithful. He's faithful to the Lord. He's faithful to the things of the Lord. He's faithful to the word. He's, he's not going to shrink back when, when things are uncomfortable. And guess what? He's also faithful and dependable to people, right? Remember that whole thing about making a rash vow? A wise leader doesn't do that. He makes commitments, and he keeps those commitments. I, I, I know that many of you would say, I remember back in the day when a handshake meant a handshake. We didn't have to sign contracts. A handshake was good enough. Times have changed. But let me say this. For a believer, our word should be just as strong as a handshake. We shouldn't even need to handshake. It should be, yes, good enough. No, good enough. We don't have to do some extra step to, to ratify this. We should be that trustworthy as believers. Why? Because God's that trustworthy. Because we're like Christ. He's making us more into Christ. And Christ loves truth and goodness. He tells the truth and he's trustworthy. He's dependable. So if we're becoming like Jesus, we'll be like him and dependable and trustworthy as well. We don't need a handshake. My word is just as strong as a handshake or a contract. That should be the idea. He's dependable. He cares. He loves. He, he's faithful to the Lord. And notice, notice this word here when it says uh, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. This word for preserve is the idea of an armed guard. So, so it's almost kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie or a TV show where there's a king on the throne. And he's got the two guys with the shields and the spears right aside of him. That's the image. A king sits and his two bodyguards, the ones that protect him and protect his life, protect his, 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 his monarchy, is love for God and love for people, faithfulness to God and dependability. That's it. Th- those are his bodyguards. Those are the things that protects him. So what a wise king, This is what a wise leader thinks about. I need to love God, love people, be faithful to God. And, and this, this, is, this is what it's about. These things will protect me. God will protect me. Uh, this This is how leadership needs to happen. And then notice what he says next. He says, by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. So as a wise leader, we look at how we deal with people. We love them because we love God. I love God, therefore I love you. You should love God, therefore you should love me. And my desire is that you live for Jesus. Right? I'm faithful, dependable. I love you. And I'm not going to capitulate on, on the core truths, right? When I say I'll be there, I'm there. Got your back. That, that, that's the idea of Christians. And, and the basis, the basis, right, should be that love for one another. That's the basis of, of what we do. That's the basis of leadership. So as he's dealing with people, notice what happens in verse 29. Remember, still, we're still talking about how he kind of winnows and keeps that which is good and gets rid of that which is bad. And notice in verse 29. He says, the glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Um, It's kind of interesting. In in the ancient world, it is far different than what we think. So in the ancient world, if you had gray hair, that's what you wanted. You wanted gray hair. The older guy was the good guy. In fact, Thomas Aquinas, in his Summa, if you ever get bored and you want to read a whole bunch of nonsense... Thomas Aquinas' summa is a pretty good place to go. Um, But in there, he talks about first responders to a fire, and who do you rescue first? Who's the top priority? Today, who would be the top priority? The women and children, right? Nope. Thomas Aquinas says the oldest guy, the next heir, the mother, then the children. You save the old guy first. Kind of interesting, right? In our culture, we, we kind of value youth, right? People, they get gray hair, and they freak out, and they go out, and they get hair dye. I don't want anybody to see the grayness. I, I don't want them to see the grayness coming on. In the ancient world, they would have said, give me that gray. I want that gray. It's interesting, then, when you then look at this verse, because Solomon, writing in a different culture with a different idea of age, where the person with the gray hair was the one who was far superior, notice he writes first the glory, this is a good thing, the glory of a young man is their strength. And the splendor of an older man is his gray hair. So the idea is Solomon is saying they both have strengths. It's not a competition with each other. right? They they both have strengths, and those strengths complement each other. The sense then, with the given the weight of the context, would be a wise leader does not pit people against each other, which is not loving, which is not faithful, which is not dependable, but rather uses their strengths together in a way that accomplishes God's will and God's purpose, it would make sense, though, that everyone has value because we're all made in the image of God. Therefore, we all have value. So the young would have as much value as the old person. And of course they would have different strengths. It's it's kind of interesting when you look at this verse in light of the modern church. There's a lot of churches that have two services: the old guy church, traditional, and the young person's game, right, contemporary. They try to fit those together and They can't, and so they go, well, we'll just have two. I think Solomon's advice here would be, nope, no, no, we need each other. The old need the young, and the young need the old. We need each other, and we have to work together. It's sad. Sad that the modern church cannot come together and figure out a way to work with one another on the basis of age. Couldn't, couldn't the church do that? Shouldn't the church do that? Shouldn't there be a way that we can work together, multi-generational, using each other, helping each other, uh, encouraging one another? The strength of one covers the weakness of another? Right. The wise leader understands this. The wise leader isn't going to say, well, we're going to have a young church versus an old church, and we're going to try to pit them against each other and argue which one's superior so that, so that this one remains because this is the one I like the most. No, a wise leader goes, people are valuable because they're made in the image of God and their strengths. And a wise leader knows, I'm going to use that strength. Now, let's say say that the person is less than honorable. What do you do then? Notice verse 30. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the inner man. So the word for blow here means to hit with the intention of crippling. So we're not talking about a love tap. We're, not just, we're talking about a very serious strike. And the word here for wound means to bruise. You could translate it, you blacken someone's eye so that you hit their heart and sin goes away. That's the idea, right? This is talking about a serious punishment. Serious punishment. Now, I know that in modern times, our sensibilities... You don't hit people, and you don't give them black eyes, right? That's bad. And I think the Bible would normally agree. The Bible does agree. You shouldn't unprovokedly hit people to cause harm. We have to remember that this is in light of a wise king, of an ideal king. This is a king who uses discernment. This is a king who loves what is good, has a firm grasp of what God requires from his law. This is a a king who loves. This is a king who wants the best for people. And when people step out of line, sometimes there's a punishment that has to be severe and harsh. And this verse is encouraging that harshness. Look into the Old Testament. There are some incredibly harsh punishments that are found in the Old Testament. Punishments that you and I would go, oh, I don't know if that's worth that for that. But here's the point. I'm not God and neither are you. When God gives a punishment for a crime, it is the fair punishment for that crime. You and I might look at it and cringe, but we're not God. He is. He's wise. And so this verse says there's got to be certain punishments that happen, even if they're harsh, They're harsh. Now, I do not think that this gives anyone the license to physically abuse anyone else. That is evil, and that is sinful. That should not happen. That shouldn't even be named amongst believers, physical abuse. No abuse should happen inside the church, right? There should be nothing. This is talking about a reasoned king who's using wisdom and discernment based off of God's word... Doing a specific punishment. And notice what he's doing. He's not just punching because he likes punching. He's not punching because he's angry, right? He's not hitting somebody just because he likes torturing people. Notice there's a specific purpose. Blows that wound cleanse away evil, and strokes make clean the innermost parts. The punishment is purposefully to bring about repentance. See, that's the difference. A wise king does things in a way that brings about repentance because that's what he wants. Wise leaders sometimes have to confront sin, and sometimes that sin requires a very harsh, very harsh reaction. A biblical leader does not shrink away from that, but a biblical leader leader weeps while he does it, saying we have to be firm on sin, but I hate the fact that sin is doing this and destroying someone's life. And they do it with the desire that it will cause repentance. We've talked about this numerous times of the chastisement of the Lord, of how he deals with us as believers. There's numerous ways that the Lord punishes us as his children. He disciplines us. Remember the advice that was given in Hebrews and that we saw in Proverbs was not shrink away of course, it's not pleasant, but realizing that the Father who loves us is disciplining us to bring us to 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 get rid of certain things that are devastating to us, to bring out those good things. A wise leader seeks to do the same thing. A wise leader seeks to destroy the sin without destroying the heart. We're not good at it. <laughs> There's lots of times where we do stuff and we do it out of emotions. But but wisdom would say you need to have discernment, you need to have love, you need to have the whole passage when you're doing verse 30. You've got to have all those things in mind. So this is what a wise leader looks like. By the way, notice that as we look at a wise leader, how much we see in the world around us of the shortcomings of leaders inside of the church, shortcomings of our own lives, shortcomings of the government. We see all of this. Which means that we all have lots of room to improve. We have lots of room to become more like Jesus. We never stop growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm incredibly encouraged by that promise that's in Philippians. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we're not going to be the ideal leader. We're not going to be the ideal Christians we're going to have a lot of problems that got to get worked out. That's expected. The goal is that I am walking in a way that's closer to Jesus now than I was yesterday, right? This moment, I'm acting in obedience. I might have been disobedient the last moment, but this moment, I'm stepping out in obedience, walking by the Spirit. That's the desire. The desire is that we become the godly people that God wants us to be. And when it comes time for us to lead, time for us to influence, time for us to be in this position, we walk like Christ, we talk like Christ, we're yielding to the power of the Spirit, and our leadership will look something like this by God's grace. So, let us go out and let us be believers walking by the Spirit, and let's be good, wise leaders. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do what we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so very much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We ask, Father, that as we go out and as we uh, are obedient in the different uh, places you place us, and if you place us in a place of leadership, Father, we ask that our leadership would be wise would be one that is full of wisdom, discernment, love, full of the scriptures, full of Christ. We're so very thankful, so very thankful for all that you've done and all that you've given us. We also are very thankful for our mothers who, were, who fed us and clothed us. We're so very thankful for godly mothers who taught us the truth of, of your word that lovingly prayed for us, lovingly cares for us, continues to encourage us in the Lord. We're so very thankful for that. We also pray, Father, for the Schultz family, and as they are still mourning the loss of Mark, we ask that you would give them comfort in a way that only you can comfort. We're so very thankful, so very thankful for all that you've done. We say these things in your son's name. Amen.